For today's episode, Leo and I are super excited to share an interview with Dr. Raymond Tucker. We talked about his important research and clinical work in the area of suicide prevention among transgender and gender diverse adults. He had a really wide ranging discussion, and you'll hear how knowledgeable and passionate Dr. Tucker is as he speaks about this topic at multiple levels, from policies to therapeutic strategies, and also from multiple viewpoints as a researcher and as a clinician. Before we go to that conversation, I want to tell you a bit more about his background. Dr. Tucker is a licensed clinical psychologist and assistant professor of psychology at Louisiana State University. His research and clinical work focus broadly on the prevention of suicide, particularly in underserved communities. He has already made major contributions by publishing his work in the field. He also serves as a co-director at the National Suicidology Training Center and provides trainings in evidence-based suicide prevention across the world. For all of these contributions, Dr. Tucker has been recognized with the Rising Faculty Research Award from his university and the Citizen Scientist Award from the American Association of Suicidology. We were just so happy to have Ray on and really enjoy talking to him, and we hope that you enjoy listening to the episode. Thank you. Welcome to Psychodrama Podcast. This is your co-host, Katie. And this is your co-host, Leo. How are you, Katie? I'm doing pretty well today. How are you? I'm doing good. You know, it's Friday and I'm pretty excited uh, about our guest for today. I am too. We're really excited to have Dr. Ray Tucker here today. And Ray and I, I think, did we first connect? Hi, Ray, first of all. How are you doing today? Thanks for having me, (laughs) y'all. It's our pleasure. Did we first connect through Twitter? You know, that sounds right. I, I think I was citing some of your work, got onto Twitter and started following your blog and you sort of reading your blog and using some of the information from your blog sort of in my professional development. Well, that's that's wow. so nice to hear. And then Ray and I co-wrote a blog post while Ray was still in grad school about writing tips basically and and because it it's such a struggle for so many people it certainly is for me still um writing and and that was a really fun collaboration and i do hope we get to cross paths at a conference one of these days in real life too but for now it's just great (laughs) to be able to talk to you for psychodrama i know we made uh collaborating via online methods cool before like it was something (laughs) i just feel like we were trendsetters there katie (laughs) i think Right, because what year was that? It was at least five years ago, maybe more. Oh, yeah. Still in grad school. So it would have been 2016 or 15, somewhere in there. Yeah. (laughs) So this this is fun to actually be able to have a conversation because I've been following your research and it's just you do such important work within the field of suicide prevention, especially looking at marginalized groups and and specific risk factors and and things that are related to you know i i don't that i think are missing from the literature otherwise and so it's really nice to be able to talk to you about it today and i I was wondering how you got into this area of research well i I appreciate that katie and i before sort of answering the the historical steps of that i need to acknowledge the fact that i am not from any said marginalized or unrepresented groups i come from as much uh you know privilege as possible as a a cisgender, straight, uh, white man, able-bodied man. So my my work in this field 
doesn't come from a place of, of lived experience, but it comes uh, from a place of of just a, a concerned um, advocate and, and suicidologist. So I, I always try to remind myself and acknowledge that when I'm working um, in this space. Uh, my time in the field really uh, started um, in my transition from undergraduate to graduate studies. My undergraduate studies, I was working on some sort of depression research, and um, I took a what we call a post-back year, where you you know get your undergraduate degree, and then uh, you take a year off to get some more training. And I worked in Memphis, Tennessee, at University of Memphis, Tennessee, with Robert Niemeyer, who was doing a, a study on how um, African-American mothers uh, had bereavement due to homicides of their sons. And it was this extremely complex trauma work that was specific to an underserved population and um, and maybe one of the only parts of the country you could do that work. And in as a, a kid from small town Wisconsin, I learned a, a lot more about the impact of race from that research, as well as living in the South at the time. Um, and so that helped me sort of think about research a little differently and suicide prevention in a way of less one size fits all, to be honest. And it uh, brought me to Oklahoma State University, where I was doing some work with um, indigenous young adults um, in my graduate studies. So I was mentored by a woman of color who was doing work in uh, black or African-American suicide prevention and really got to learn, uh, that's Dr. Wing, Dr. Larica Wingate, and got to learn more about you know the, the diversity uh, science within suicidology. Yeah, yeah. So I it, it really started in a, a long trajectory and then getting into the transgender and gender diverse population was after a clinical experience on my uh, clinical internship when the first patient I treated um, was a transgender uh, uh, veteran with a pretty complex uh, medical history. And it really, again, yet again, was one of those times where um, the sort of one size fits all just didn't didn't work with this patient. Thanks so much for talking about that. And Leo and I should mention, we went to grad school with Lurica Wingate, actually. Yeah, yeah I, I was an undergraduate with her and I worked at the FSU cafeteria, and she would come in and eat there. So we kind of knew each other from that. And also we were in a few classes together. And then we ended up being in the same and Dr. Thomas Joyner's lab together in grad school. So it's it's a fun connection and can be kind of a small world within suicide prevention as well. You've, you've experienced the the just joy of having a lunch with Dr. Wingate. I, I was very lucky to be there by her. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that what you said is so important, the idea of suicide prevention not being a one-size-fits-all approach is super important. Today, we want to specifically focus on suicide prevention among gender-diverse individuals and transgender individuals. And I was wondering if we could just start off with taking a couple of moments to define transgender, gender diverse, and gender dysphoria for listeners who may be unfamiliar with the differences in those terms. Yes, and this really is an ever-evolving sort of nomenclature and language that takes some time to uh, learn and then takes even more effort to stay on, on top of it. So I'll do my best, but by the time people may even be listening to this, some of these things sort of change around. So uh, transgender refers to individuals whose sex that's signed at birth or the sex that you'll see on a birth certificate uh, doesn't match their current felt uh, gender. Um, and so this could encapsulate um, this idea of gender nonconforming, which you may heard. Uh, and this is the idea where um, some people may identify as sort of masculine or male, even though their, their sex assigned at birth was female, but they may also identify as neither 
this sort of polar genders of there's a male or there's female gender, there's non-conforming or there's gradients in between. So uh, we also use the term uh, gender diverse to try to be inclusive of folks who, again, their sex assigned at birth is not the same as their felt gender, um, but uh, they don't necessarily believe in the the sort of gender poles of male, female, somewhere around, in between, in the middle of, you know, whatever that might be. So we try to use transgender and gender diverse to be an inclusive term of broadly folks whose uh, gender just doesn't match their sex assigned at birth. Gender dysphoria is an important one to uh, consider, uh, a long history of how we've sort of, the nomenclature around uh, distress related to uh, transgender and gender diverse uh, status, um, but also really that, that term came from a history of where we used to label somebody who is transgender and gender diverse as having a, a psychological disorder, a psychiatric disorder, or gender identity disorder, where we used to label the identity as disordered, not the distress that can come from being transgender or gender diverse, or not really come from that, but it's actually the way somebody interacts or has to interact with a, a non-affirming world that can create that distress. So uh, the word gender dysphoria refers to sort of this distress often internalized or, th or thoughts about the self or somebody's future in their world that is generally dysphoric, sad, depressed sounding, um, but is related to uh, their gender uh, identity, not actually labeling the gender identity as disordered. Okay, well, yeah, thanks for, for that explanation. Um, that's, that's very helpful. Yeah, and I will mention that uh, there are lots of great resources out there to understand that language a little bit uh, uh, better. Um, websites and organizations like the National Center for Trans Equality or NCTE would provide really great uh, resources for folks trying to understand a little bit more about this. And if you're on a college campus, uh, things like safe space training are a really great place to, again, understand a little bit more about the language here. Great. Yeah. And we'll we'll make sure to include those links uh, in our show notes for sure. Thank you so much for that. And so in addition to you focusing on uh, gender diverse and non-binary populations, what led your focus to to even more specific to suicidal thoughts and behaviors among this population? Absolutely. The, the main the main reason was I was already doing suicide prevention work in indigenous mm -hmm. communities and had a skill set, you know, and, and a, a sort of subject matter uh, expertise in suicide prevention and a sort of growing sort of interest and in, in time in the, the suicide and in indigenous space. So my thought was um, when I was on clinical internship and seeing how um, a transgender veteran's care was so heavily influenced by their their gender, not necessarily their psychiatric disorder or their you know uh, other risk factors. The things that were you know the, the the staff and the care not always being affirming, and how that seemed to be related to a lot of the the issues that they're experiencing. Um, you know, lo looked at that experience and 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 that uh, population and thought, wow, I might have some skills to to try to you know make some change and. and identify some of these issues that could be very specific to transgender people and maybe even more specific to transgender veterans. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so you kind of just this particular client really kind of honed your attention to the need that exists in, in, in this particular clinical population. Absolutely. Um, it, it was a very, uh, I'll, I'm going to leave out a lot of details on this because of the, the nature sure, of sure. the case, but it, it was somebody who was interacting with the healthcare system 
for months and basically living at the hospital and uh, the way staff were, some staff were treating her, you know, was more in line with their sex, her, her sex at sign of birth. And that was mm-hmm. kind of frustration and feeling like people didn't care about her. Um, and so I'm sitting here trying to do the best evidence-based suicide prevention using these tools that none of them have this sort of affirming practices necessarily built into them, or more importantly, how to help somebody who's being not affirmed day to day in their healthcare, you know, decisions and healthcare practices. Um, so it, it was just an extremely complex, um, unfortunately, a complex case that yeah. you know, what we were doing was almost making things worse as a as a healthcare system. Mm-hmm. And that's that's an important point. The veteran populations in of themselves are a kind of a subspecialty, and especially as it relates to non-suicidal, well, suicidal behavior in general and suicidality. And so when you add that intersection of uh, gender identity and how the person is being treated by it, can you maybe talk a little bit about um, some of the difficulties and that intersectionality between the, the two populations and the relationship between the rates uh, of uh, suicidal, suicidal behavior among veterans and then how it might look like for uh, uh, transgender individuals in that system? Absolutely. This one's pretty complex. I, I will say based on we have a lot of difficulty comparing, let's say, transgender veterans' suicide rates to transgender mm. civilians, partially because the way we usually get sort of death rates comes from, you know, coroner reports where you're not going to have gender diversity necessarily embedded um, in those data. So mm. the way we would compare, let's say, you know, uh, rates of suicide in white versus black individuals, we just cannot do that the same way in comparing transgender and gender diverse folks versus gender majority. And then again, that complexity of, of veteran status in there. So what I will say is I would say the quote unquote jury is still out as to do transgender mm. gender diverse folks die more than gender majority individuals. Um, the data would, the what's out there would support, yes, that's true, but it's, it's not to the same rigor that we get sort of the general suicide rates in the country. Mm. Similarly, a lot of the work in uh, transgender veterans comes out of the Veterans Healthcare Administration, the VHA, who has one of the largest medical records, well, I would argue the largest medical record system in the world. And what we know from um, some survey data is um, not all transgender and gender diverse veterans receive care at the VA. So again, when we look at you know things like suicidal thoughts and behaviors in transgender veterans, if we only use VHA data, we're only getting at maybe 60-ish percent at most of transgender and gender diverse folks by using that data source. So as much as I want to give you a nice, clear, well, it's higher than this and lower than mm. this, I would say that that is, that is a, a little too complicated by um, where we're getting these data, which is un, an oddly unfortunate microcosm, or, or it shows you just the, another aspect of disparity for transgender mm-hmm. gender folks, that we don't even know the suicide rate in this group because of how we define death and suicide through our reporting. Um, so it, it's it's a tough one to say, but I would generally say that our survey data supports um, uh, transgender individuals are more likely to have recent suicidal thoughts and a history of suicide attempts compared to majority individuals. And when we compare uh, transgender civilians versus veterans, generally those rates seem pretty equal um, we don't really have a good exact example of um, of whether or not um, whether or not they're, they're higher in one group than the other. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for that context around how complicated it is to understand these rates. I I appreciate when people are honest about 
what we know, don't know, and, and where some of those gaps come in. I, I think that's really important. I'm also curious about how, um, when we're talking specifically about veterans and transgender veterans and your observations, how you may have seen policies such as um, not allowing openly transgender people within the military to impact transgender veterans and suicidal thoughts. What have been some of your observations around changing policies on transgender people in the military? Yeah, and if you don't mind, I'll even kind of jump back to the idea of of how important it is for us to show our our non-knowing or our mm. uh, accepted stupidity in research here. Because um, one thing I, I think we have a tendency to do, and, and maybe with a good heart, is to sort of over-pathologize or or make transgender and gender diverse folks sound more at risk or, or sort of paint such a bleak picture of what it is to be gender diverse. And we do it by, you know, look at these rates of suicidal thoughts in this survey, you know, oh my gosh, it's five times, 10 times higher than what we see in the general population. But then you compare how they assess these things and they're not the same. And although I, I do think our best assessments would say it's higher in gender diverse uh, individuals compared to civilians, all of this sort of over overestimation and not being really cognizant of what we're doing can only maybe paint a very negative mm -hmm. way of what it is to be gender diverse when there are unique strengths, there are unique um, supports, and there are, uh, when you talk to folks who are gender diverse who even experience suicidal thoughts, there can be lots of pride in their identities and their experiences at the same time there's disparity and suffering so i always try to be so, and do you mind if we oh yeah sorry do you mind if we dig a little bit deeper in the, into that just because I'm, I'm i'm curious and then we'll come back to katie's regard katie's question yeah. regarding policy but i am curious maybe you could give a little bit of more uh, examples of what you mean by some of the methodology or perhaps the measures that may be presenting a bleaker picture of what it is and, and why that might be the case. Can you give an example of how that might be occurring? Yeah, and I, I, without a lot of detail to compare this study to this study, I can say hmm. one, one survey may ask a, a, a group of transgender individuals a question like, have you ever attempted suicide before? Mm -hmm. And what we know from our research literature, some amazing work by uh, Matt Milner and Matt Knock out at Harvard and, and Florida State University has sort of replicated this, this uh, work as well. I think, uh, oh, I can't remember who the first author on that project was, but we've seen it now. Um, Thomas Joyner was the, the mentor on it, was asking a question like, have you ever attempted suicide? Will overestimate the number or, you know, indication of suicide attempts compared to an item like, have you ever attempted suicide in which you wanted to die or thought your actions would lead to your death? So, so we may, you know, in these spaces, we may use a more sort of stringent item with mm -hmm. sort of broad public health information and a more sort of lax or an item that's more likely to lead to overestimation in a survey that could be particularly with uh, transgender and gender diverse individuals. And mm -hmm. honestly, some of my own research has unfortunately done that as well. So that's just an example of if we're not thinking about our tools very critically, again, we may overestimate this this item. And it may be that it's that high, but mm -hmm. um, still figuring that out. Yeah, thank you. That's a very important point regarding a measurement error, right? So the, mm -hmm. the, how there might be the way questions are asked uh, may make an may influence the rates of what we're looking at. Great, mm -hmm. thank you. And yeah, so now back to Katie's point. And first, I'll, I'll just say thank you so much for explaining that. I think that 
everything you said, those are such important points that set the context for our discussion here. So thank you for clarifying that. That's that's really important. Of course. Uh, back to the some of the policy work, and that's that's why I wrote a study and uh, just sort of a thought piece in 2019 um, about the intersection of gender diversity and veteran status because some of these policies. You know, I sat in the VA system and then, you know, now that I'm in my my uh, career as a professor, watching some of these things change. So over the course of writing that paper alone, I think there was a repeal to openly serving. So I think I started that paper. No, that's wrong. I, when I started that paper, uh, gender diverse folks were not allowed to serve openly. They could be um, ex they could be removed from military service. And if if they were found to be gender diverse, mm -hmm. if you were and if you're removed from military service, you're denied access to uh, the benefits of having served honorably in the military, things like VA care um, and other benefits. And then uh, I'm working on this work, and I, I then I believe that then it was opened to serve openly in the military, so that you know uh, reduce that disparity. And then over time, again, it was it was, you know, uh, that was repealed. And once again, it became not okay to serve openly. So in the course of these years, I'm watching this happen, you know, in the veteran veterans healthcare experience, and that was permeating and people were talking about that um, in my clinical experiences. Uh, so certainly something like that is important. Um, something like the VHA, uh, Veterans Healthcare Administration, does honestly some of the best work around supporting transgender and gender diverse individuals, amazing uh, affirmative care uh, uh, education experiences for providers, affirmative care practices in subspecialty clinics. However, one thing they don't do is provide gender affirming uh, surgeries like mm -hmm. uh, genital surgery or uh, uh, chest surgery. And so although there's a lot of affirming practices um, in that place where surgery is specific, there generally isn't. That's People have to look outside of the VA system. So there's these interesting Unfortunately, they're, I hate to say interesting, they're interesting to me, concerning to me, um, complications uh, that would be, you know, having a, a veteran status compared to um, being uh, a civilian. However, it may also open up access to more affirming care than you might find in the community as well, depending on where you live, of course. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like so there was kind of this whipsaw basically between one administration saying it's okay to serve openly and other administration says no, then back and forth and repeal. Can you explore a little bit more about how it was reflected upon in the individual's experience of stigma against trans individuals uh, at the, in, the, in the VHA system or outside of it? Yeah, you know, I don't have great research on the actual changes in the policy. All I could speak to is what, what, what the conversations were like talking to my gender diverse patients who were- Yeah, uh, that'd be great. That was, yeah. a, lot of, that was a lot of you know, pride in that and um, excitement that their, you know, uh, their their colleagues could, you know, openly serve. They wish they had. One thing I can speak to, however, is some of my research on the impact of serving as transgender, but concealing that um, and how that related to suicidal thoughts and behaviors. So this was a study mm -hmm. that was uh, mentored by Karen Lahavot up at uh, VA Puget Sound in Seattle. Um, she does amazing work around uh, uh, gender and PTSD and suicide, as well as uh, transgender health. And um, we investigated, uh, we had a measure of, were you ever sort of uh, investigated for potentially being transgender while you're in the military? Were you ever removed from your barracks and separated from your platoon 
uh, or, or service because you were under investigation. These things were objectively stressful based on, on uh, gender. Um, we call these uh, often uh, distal minority stressors, these objective stressors that happen. And whether or not those stressful experiences were related to more internal stressful experiences related to uh, one's gender, things like shame about being transgender, uh, increased fear about being found out, sort of fear of mm -hmm. one's own gender being revealed, and then sort of vigilance to trying to conceal this or expecting to be sort of negative things to happen if anyone finds out they're a transgender. And um, what we found was individuals who experienced that those those negative events being investigated or removed from the barracks, that was related to more shame, more guilt about being transgender, and thus uh, more suicidal thoughts, even in the last, I think it was two weeks and month. So mm -hmm. those, those events could have happened years, maybe even decades ago, but still seem to have, you know, its impact on a sort of a felt, it, particularly it was around the felt shame of being transgender, the sort of internalized dysphoria of that. Um, and so certainly the, the, those events uh, that occurred when somebody, when it was not, you know, okay to serve openly seem to have an impact mid months, maybe even years down the line on suicidal thoughts. Thank you. Yeah, that's that's exactly kind of what I was trying to get at. Very interesting. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I appreciate how much you're highlighting how these types of policy, um, I guess these types of policies and and discrimination can impact and, and become part of individuals' internal worlds and how they view themselves and the emotions that they experience. And that kind of sees, it highlights what a key point of suicide prevention it is to look at policies and, and these bigger procedures because of how they impact individuals. I'm wondering what other types of factors you found through your research or even uh, in your clinical work specifically seem to increase suicidal thoughts and behaviors among gender diverse and transgender people. Yeah, I, I think one thing that might help is sort of me explaining a bit of the framework that guides my thinking in here. Because again, you know, all, all I can run from is previous research, conversations with transgender and gender diverse individuals and previous work. Because I'm not, you know, this isn't from a lived experience perspective for me. Um, one of the sort of prevailing frameworks or thoughts around how something like uh, a marginalized sexual orientation or gender orientation can relate to things like depression and suicidal thoughts is called the psychological mediation framework. And, you know, we're in the psychology space, so we love our acronyms, PMF, we love our, our fancy lingo, but it, it really hopefully is, you can see that sort of framework of the study I just mentioned is uh, based on this idea of distal stressors or st objectively stressful events related to one's gender. So mm -hmm. uh, these things like uh, aggressive comments, uh, being removed from a household or removed from a friend group because of one's gender. These are objectively stressful events that are specific to one's gender, can relate to suicidal thoughts, depression, and anxiety, these types of things, through two kind of camps of, of variables. One is the things that we would see in the general population that, that could be related to stressful events, things like perceived stress, uh, things like loneliness, things like emotion dysregulation, things like psychological misery and pain. Those camps of variables or thoughts, that can occur in transgender individuals, cisgender individuals, black, white, it, it, across countries. 
it, those are, are general sort of population variables that you could see a stressful event could, of course, increase somebody's hopelessness or misery. But those objective events also can increase the, the sort of as key. I loved how you said it, the sort of internal world related to gender rejection. So things like shame, trying to conceal one's true gender or this sort of firm belief that if I'm ever found out for being transgender, only negative things will happen. So the mediation framework proposes these stressful events can be related to suicidal thoughts and depression through both general processes, pain, hopelessness, these types of things that, you know, I will give you a shout out, Katie, your workbook is amazing around hopelessness and psychological misery in particular, but also very specific internal gender processes like shame. And so thank some- you so much. I, I really appreciate that. <laughs> I didn't mean to interrupt, but I had to thank you. <laughs> oh, of course. Uh, you know, I, we look forward to working with other patients because sometimes we can't do therapy all the time. So having something to guide continued care is going to be extremely helpful. But in that in that sort of framework, what I could explain my research has shown is some of the g- gender discriminations, uh, again, being investigated for being transgender or gender diverse during military service, and then also n- maybe not having access to gender affirming care like surgical interventions. Those can be some of those distal stressors, the, the objective stressors that relate to things like suicidal ideation through um, symptoms of depression and loneliness. Those are the sort of group non-specific processes, the general, you know, population processes, but then those internal processes, the, the one that really pops out is internal shame, a belief of shame and guilt about being transgender, as well as what seems to be elements of gender dysphoria, the sadness about somebody's gender not matching their sex assigned at birth. So uh, we, we actually have a lot of psychologists and people who are very involved in social in, uh, in psychology and in both clinical and research as part of our audience. Uh, so a lot of these kind of terms are going to be very familiar to them and they probably know. But if I could perhaps summarize for some of the audience that may not be as familiar, we have a lot of students and also people that may just general interest. If, if I was to summarize it in a, in a more kind of lay terms, would you say that it's uh, so we all have these uh, susceptibilities for depression, let's say, for example, or suicidality. So people to a higher degree or another one and things like. Uh, stressor events uh, that may occur in life in general, or just a genetic susceptibility to depression. But then in addition for um, transgender and gender diverse individuals, in particular for those who are veterans and have served in the military or active military duty, the extra stressor, the, so those those the stressors exist that we all have, but for them a very unique set of uh, factors that may increase the chances of them experiencing suicidal uh, suicidal ideation and suicidal behavior is this perceived shame about uh, their, well, the the very negative reactions that they may elicit from other people and shame about their uh, not not being accepted for their identity rather than their um, gender assigned at birth. Is that that more or less capture it? Yeah, it's it's we all have layers of risk. There's a, just simply an added layer of risk for being gender diverse. Both the sort of objective events like not being able to get health care that that you feel like you need to support your well-being as also general shame about, you know, your gender, something that as a, you know, a cisgender person we generally don't experience. So right. it's sort of the additive piece of that. One of the factors also that seems worth mentioning is we talk about kind of the policy and big picture aspects of it, but you're also talking about day-to-day things. You mentioned 
being called slurs, but also being misgendered and how that can contribute. But you also, I think, importantly talked about strengths and and pride in identity and unique protective factors that also Mm -hmm, are connected with being gender diverse or transgender. Would you mind expanding on that a little bit, too? Yeah, it's such a great point and one that very unfortunately my research has has neglected up until really a couple of years ago. That that psychological mediation framework, the that that same idea of A to B to C, also has this built-in piece of if somebody is experiencing more of these objective events like racial slur or slurs that could be race-related or gender-related, um, and uh, in, in other being misgendered, they're experiencing these things. There there could be supports that offset that make it less likely that those experiences result in pain, hopelessness, and shame. And, and those pieces that maybe sort of weaken that relationship or, or kind of stop it from going to the next step are things like having pride in one's you know, gender identity, um, having a supportive community around gender, uh, one's gender identity. And so one study we're just wrapping up and um, we're about to get published here shortly uh, looks at this idea of uh, supported or excuse me, chosen family. So for uh, folks who aren't familiar with that term, it may be that gender diverse individuals have been shunned from their social circles and their families, their religious groups for their, um, their, for their gender, for being transgender. And, uh, and this idea is, well, I have chosen my family. Uh, they, are, they are people in my life, whether by blood, related by blood or not that I feel connected to that are affirming that are sort of, you know, right for me. And um, we're finding some some uh, research that supports that part of social support is particularly important for, again, offsetting things like shame about transgender identity and suicidal ideation. We also have some um, work on uh, sort of online spaces that are, are that are transgender affirmed. Mm-hmm. So uh, this is one thing that I've heard clinically of you know, this message board, this online community of transgender individuals have saved my life. And we um, luckily had some research to kind of look into this, that uh, when compared to people who don't feel like they have, uh, when when we look at transgender individuals who feel like they don't have any supportive community, whether online or in person, they seem to be at higher risk of suicidal ideation than those folks who have sort of uh, an online supportive community. It seems to be even stronger of a protective effect if there is an in-person, sort of not just online community, but there seems to be a relationship of uh, of that, you know, on, if it even if it's just an online community, that could be, you know, offset some of the suicidal thinking. Yeah, that's so it it really kind of just highlights the the role that social support. Uh, or lack thereof can play as a as a risk factor or as a protective factor. So if you don't have social support and you feel alienated and rejected by others, that's going to increase your shame. That is going to increase your risk for societal societal behavior. But if you happen to have that social support, that it will buffer you a lot against societal behavior and ideation uh, to a great degree. So finding that is is extremely important. And obviously points to a a, a good place for intervention, right? Mm-hmm. And there's there are also some smaller relationships with things like having access to affirming care, um, feeling like you like a transgender individual doesn't need to educate their providers on what it is mm. to be transgender and the mm. unique needs of gender diversity. That although you know somebody still could have you know a serious uh, you know mental health concern and that can be related to suicidality, 
But even uh, the ability to have affirming care and not have to educate seems to have a small relationship to protecting against things like depression and suicidal thoughts. Um, So even something that, again, as a cisgender individual might see it as small as Mm -hmm. just knowing some of the language that we started this, you know, episode on could be actually quite important for some of our patients. Right. Yeah, some of the things that we, that I probably take as for granted, somebody can very directly relate to my experience as, as a man, if I have a, a cisgender uh, physician, and we both identify cisgender, kind of there's a, a level of rapport that I don't have to extra explain a, a whole level of complications in my life, uh, that the, or that person may just have an easier frame of reference that a person who may be trans or gender diverse does not have the luxury, unless they happen to have very, uh, they're lucky to have a, a provider that is very well versed or at a center where they have uh, specialization on gender issues, I guess. Yeah, one of my uh, one one of my colleagues who's gender diverse that I, I love to work with will will feel the need to walk around with a, a an informational pamphlet to new providers. Just mm. I was like, I've never had to think about bringing in information about my gender, my race, my sexual orientation to a new primary care provider appointment. But that is something that clearly has been palpable enough for this individual, that that has happened enough that they feel the need that that has to be done. And that's that's just extremely unfortunate and an unfortunate manifestation of sort of previous healthcare experiences. Mm -hmm. I can just imagine that legitimate, valid anxiety about meeting with a new provider and not knowing what to expect, especially after having those experiences. And I'm also wondering if you might expand a little bit. We talked about some of the affirming medical procedures. How do those fit into reducing or improving mental health and reducing suicide risk in terms of, I don't know if if that would fit within the PMF framework or how would you view that? It it certainly offsets the likelihood of some of those section A distal experiences. So some of those distal experiences that could be related to suicide is something like um, uh, being misgendered in an office, um, being called what we call a dead name, somebody's name that was associated with the sex assigned at birth, but oftentimes when people um, have a different gender identity than their sex assigned at birth, they will choose a different name that more corresponds to that. So using the dead name in something like uh, a waiting room, those are those are experiences that just don't have to happen if we're better educated and we we are doing affirming practices. So they cert- that idea certainly fits in PMF. It, it it fits in the sense that there'll be less of those distal gender stressors if we're if we as providers are more educated. The one thing I will comment about the PMF is though, although it it certainly guides a lot of my research, one of the the um, critiques, and I think it's extremely valid one of this framework, is at the center of all the distress and difficulties and the disparity is still the transgender individual. It's their experiences, it's their distressing events, it's not the systems and the structures that maintain it. So there is a what we call a socio-ecological model of how things like transgender stigma or the stigma around being uh, gender diverse um, could be maintained. And that could be you know, maintained within an individual, like having shame, but also it could be kept or you know, made worse by families who, again, you know, may misgender, use dead names, or mm-hmm. in miserable situations, kick children out of the home uh, at 13 uh, because of their gender diversity. 
it can be maintained by larger communities. And one of the larger communities that transgender individuals interact with, and so do we as cisgender people, is healthcare communities, our education communities, our schools, all of these things. Again, if non-affirming, if uh, are creating a space where somebody feels like they have to conceal their gender identity, it maintains this issue. And then that sort of next big, big layer is the structural big things going on. That could be everything from you know, TV shows not having gender diverse representation, uh, uh, policies, procedures, uh, things like, you know, the Veterans Healthcare Administration and whether or not they're going to provide surgical interventions is an element of that structural stigma that that if you kind of go layer by layer, the structural can create, you know, communities that are non-affirming and the communities can create interpersonal relationships and families that are non-affirming and all of that permeates down to create an internal world in a transgender individual that could be very painful. That framework is so important, kind of looking through different areas. And I think often thinking about therapy or in psychology, it's really looking at once we get to the individual level. I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about some of the individual psychological processes that you've either observed or heard conversations about and how shame and hope are impacted by being able to access some of those affirming um, surgeries and, and other types of things like that. How, how does that affect mental health on average for transgender yeah, people? I mean, I can speak to that patient who, you know, day to day in their healthcare experience was, was feeling shame and anger around how they're experiencing their gender while on a unit that was treating them as non-gender diverse. I mean, that's a great example of the individuals experiencing those psychological processes, hopelessness, anger, misery. And, and when you ask them, why are you miserable? It's because, well, that doctor, that male doctor just walked into my room as if I was a man. You know, I, I can see them walk into the cisgender female's room by knocking on the door, making sure they're clothed. But for mm-hmm. me, you know, even though I'm a woman, they walk in just like, and, and then they use my dead name. Like that is a, that is a perfect example of a, of a community creating those inner, that intrapersonal, that, that miserable world. And so I've seen that both sort of at a clinical level. Um, so that, that could be uh, sort of one example of that. However, I've also seen the opposite of this when people come in with a lot of shame around uh, like a, like our, our counseling center, um, they'll come in with shame around their gender and, and kind of ask why there can be from the family perspective, their, their religion, the intersection of religion and gender uh, can be extremely difficult to work through. But uh, focusing not just on, well, you know, what are your thoughts? Or is that thought really accurate? Is it, um, you know, are you sure you're interpreting, you know, people's, you know, behavior the right way? Instead of focusing so far on the internal experience, we can start to think about, well, who in your interpersonal world? Let's go up a level. Who in your interpersonal world is affirming and non-affirming? And what relationships do you want to create now? Do you have an affirming relationship with somebody who's gender diverse or, um, you know, has a sexual orientation that's not a majority orientation? Are those relationships you want to cultivate? So you can start to think about individual interventions. Um, this is actually one specific therapeutic technique um, called the, oh, no, 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 and I'm going to blank on the name. Um, don't worry about it. We can no, talk it's, banana bong right now. And Leo, I got it. It's, <laughs> it's the, uh, the social eco map activity out of Austin and Craig's 2015 intervention for sexually, sexual orientation, diverse individuals, 
where you know, kind of look at the structure of the interpersonal relationships and which relationships need to be cut out completely because they're so non-affirming, which ones need to be strengthened because those are the great ones, and what new ones do you need to create? And that is one of those, you know, somebody may come in feeling lonely and shame, and here's a way we can operate and work on the next system above um, than just you know, talking about what it's like to be lonely or uh, ways to stop feeling lonely. So there's both looking at what are the thoughts of so the person is being overly critical of themselves or feeling shame about something that they haven't done anything wrong, but they're feeling shame. There's looking at that, but then it's also about expanding to their interpersonal world and environment at the places where they have influence and creating a, an environment that is more supportive of feeling okay and feeling healthy and feeling accepted. That sounds like it's, it's kind of, Going, what's going on in their mind, but also the the community that they surround themselves with to the extent they have an impact on that. Yeah. And, and folks who are in this space know how important psychoeducation is. And if you're sort of in the cognitive behavioral space, we talk about thoughts, influencing feelings, feelings, and influencing behavior and all wrapped up together. They all influence each other. The sort of even the typical psychoeducation around something like where does shame about gender diversity come from? And like, that thoughts, feelings, behavior triangle is maybe not the right one to use. Austin and Craig recommend what they call the inverted triangle, where you actually put the, the sort of triangle of shame, the sort of narrow point, the really you know pointy, difficult point that if it was on your skin, that, would, that could cut you. You put that sort of at the base on, on somebody and that triangle, that, that point is weighed down by the structural things that create the shame, the family and interpersonal experiences that, shame, that create the shame, the day-to-day -day situations that create the shame, not just you are shameful. So even in this context of psychoeducation with a patient who is gender diverse and experiencing you know, gender dysphoria in particular, you can sort of invert the thoughts and feelings behavior triangle to say, yes, the shame is clearly a problem, but look where this could come from. Mm -hmm. um, day to day. Thank you for explaining that. We'll, we'll have to link to that in the show notes because I, I think that's very useful for clinicians to know. Yeah. And I'm wondering what, what does the research suggest about the impact on suicidal thoughts and behaviors with regard to access to hormones, surgical procedures, and other types of interventions that are designed to reduce gender dysphoria? Yeah, so um, this is definitely a growing body of research, both internationally and uh, in the U.S., and I, again, would say that there's not a lot of great work done in this place that's extremely rigorous, but what we find is, let's say some of my own research of gender-diverse veterans, uh, we saw the lowest rates of uh, past two-week and past year suicidal thoughts in gender-diverse veterans who had access and had received um, genital surgery or multiple genital surgeries uh, surgeries on the chest, um, as well as hormone uh, interventions, compared to individuals who maybe just had hormone therapy or just had hormone therapy and uh, surgery on just the genitalia or just the chest. What basically that study seemed to communicate was the, the most protection against suicidal ideation came with most comprehensive gender-affirming care. And so that that's one of those examples of this is not, you know, engage in care, provide a surgery or hormones, and then watch for months or years the way we'd really want to. But this is a, a pretty, I mean, if that cross-sectionally or in just one survey, it was pretty clear um, the relationship there. 
Um, so that could be one example of, of what that looks like. Unfortunately, there's also a lot of misinformation in this space around um, uh, previously experienced care and uh, sort of some interesting things where, you know, in, in other countries, we'll look at do people attempt less after a gender surgical intervention? And in, in, in one study, I, I believe the, the comparison was, well, it doesn't look like somebody who is transgender and, you know, they're, they're their gender is a female, they experience their life as a female, after these interventions, it doesn't look like their suicide attempt rate goes down to cisgender female. So clearly the intervention doesn't work. They're like, wait, that's not the goal of this intervention. Like there's other things about being transgender that can create a space of suicidality than just um, than just something like uh, an affirmative procedure. So unfortunately, I think there's also some mis misinformation in this particular um, aspect of um of, of this research. And I would uh, orient you to Katie Gordon's blog about some of this misinformation as well. Thanks. Thank <laughs> you. That's very kind of you. Are you talking about the a certain video by someone? Um, yes. And Shapiro? Okay. Well, yeah, thank yeah. you. I appreciate that. And, and this is actually something I speak about in that article I mentioned later is, you know, clinical psychologists, we focus on the individual, we do the counseling, we do all this, although we are very well aware of lots of the structural things that go on. Uh, what that paper tries to do is call sort of call to action for clinical psychologists to expand their understanding of just the individual processes, understanding policies like what would happen if something like plan when Planned Parenthood is defunded or loses funding, how that could that relate to transgender and gender diverse suicide? And it absolutely could because many people who are gender diverse uh, seek their hormone interventions from Planned Parenthood. And these are things that clinical psychologists may not consider. Also, we all could play a role in things like fighting misinformation. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. And I think you're right, as, as psychologists, it's not just we're, we're treating individuals and helping them the best we can, but it's also our job, which is one of the hopes Leo and I have for this podcast and specifically this episode, but all of our episodes is to try to get more accurate information out there. So we appreciate our expert guests sharing and appreciate you sharing this with us. One one question I have is you mentioned earlier that sometimes there's a risk of perhaps, um, I don't know, over pathologizing is the right word, but overestimating pathology among transgender and gender diverse people by looking at certain ways that suicidal thoughts and attempts are measured. And one thing that I think comes out maybe in some of the discussions around trans rights is that if, if we don't have access to affirming care for trans people, then suicide may be an inevitable outcome. Now, I think sometimes it's phrased that way by people who intend to really raise an alarm about why we should all care and advocating for trans care. But are there any downsides to that strategy? And are there other ways that you would say this is why affirming care is important that aren't related to suicide rates? I mean, yeah, it's just a it's just a, a right. You know, I mean, like it's, it's just um the right thing to do if we're, you know, in the healthcare space. And and what what it's unfortunate is when when any group, in particular gender diverse individuals, are trying to advocate, have to use suicide to advocate for their own healthcare, right? I mean, that's that's in this way. You think about it. They're they're saying, hey, look at these awful data. 
we have to show that, you know, suicide is more likely when we don't get the health care that we need. Like that is something that people don't have to, to do. You have to use this sort of negative experiences as particularly negative experience just to advocate for healthcare. But I, I think, um, unfortunately that, that I think you're totally right. That can be the look how bad it is from an advocate's perspective. And this is why policies need to change because look, mortality is higher because of this. Um, and that's, all, that's probably a very true experience, but it runs the risk of creating such a bleak world, uh, sort of bleak worldview around uh, gender diversity that can be uh, that can also maintain stigma, unfortunately. And along those lines, I am wondering if you might talk a bit about the role of suicide exposure or knowing someone who attempted or died by suicide among transgender and gender diverse adults and how that suicide exposure might actually impact one's own suicide risk? Great question. And um, again, I will maybe be a bit of a broken record about, you know, the research here is maybe not the most rigorous, my own included. Um, we're just starting to learn about that. But generally what we see in the, you know, general population, cisgender space, trans, uh, gen, or excuse me, just veteran space too, is when somebody is exposed to the suicide of a close other, they themselves are more likely to experience depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, and potentially um, suicide attempts in the future. Um, and little work has been done in uh, transgender population. In fact, the uh, collaboration with um, Julie Cyril at University of Kentucky and this amazing data set put together by the Trans Lifeline, one of the only, I think the actually the only um, uh, sort of phone line operated by transgender individuals for uh, transgender individuals. We worked together to um, do a, a survey on some of these types of experiences. And in that work, we did find that it looks like Again, we didn't do a perfect comparison, but it looks like transgender individuals are simply more likely to know somebody who has died, a close other who has died by suicide or attempted suicide than what we see in sort of general population or cisgender population specifically. Not a perfect comparison, but it seems to uh, be that way. Uh, and it does look like uh, that exposure, particularly to a close individual, is related to one's own history of suicide attempts, simply people who are exposed are more likely themselves to have attempted and lived than those who weren't uh, weren't exposed or didn't. Oh, and I'm trying to use the word bereaved or bereaved by um, you know uh, somebody's suicide. And one of the the maybe more complicating factors that I hope my research can follow up on is we did find this relationship of of transgender veterans who were bereaved by by suicide. When we compared those who lost another transgender individual versus those who had never lost a transgender individual to suicide, those who had lost another transgender individual to suicide had higher rates of suicidal thoughts compared to those um, who had lost somebody but was not transgender. So there seems to be maybe uh, an interplay of, of the gender of, of the suicidal, uh, the, the suicide decedent or the individual who died. To unpack that, how do you think what would you speculate explains that relationship? Katie, that's such a great point. I'm so, I'm so glad you asked because as a cisgender person, I'll, I'll admit I got that those results and went, oh my gosh, I have no idea. And luckily I um, was part of the trans collaborations and still am, which is a group of, of scholars across the country from different disciplines, endocrinology, psychology, rhetoric studies who you know work on issues related to transgender, gender diverse health. 
And I, I, we have a, a board of gender diverse uh, folks and, and they, there's almost 20 of them, I believe at this point that they help guide our research and, you know, make sense of things, help recruit, but also make sure, you know, we're informed uh, from a lived experience perspective. And I brought that, that, you know, idea to the, the board and got some information to maybe sort of hypothesize. Cause of course there isn't research. That was the first study to ever look at this about maybe what we should look into in the next studies. And uh, what there's this comment about um, it's not uncommon for people, uh, transgender individuals who are sort of early on their gender journey, whether that's they're just starting sort of medical procedures or their, their identity is shifting to have sort of role models that they see as farther along in their gender journey. They're living every day as their their identified gender. They're very, they seem to be outwardly very proud of that. And they speak about their gender diversity in a way that's you know, extremely strength-based and, and proud. And the comment was, well, if that person, that sort of role model dies by suicide, that could be particularly devastating. That somebody who's early in that gender journey, struggling through that, worried about what life will look like, they may have inspiration and hope by this role model. And to lose a role model like that to suicide could be particularly devastating to an individual. What came to my, to my mind when you were talking about that phenomenon was, uh, the concept of chosen family. So I wondered if maybe another hypothesis that I had that I had was whether if the person that they that died by suicide was somebody who was close but a part of that chosen family, then they lose that strong social support. But it sounds like basically exactly the same along the lines of what this board member may have suggested. So yeah, really interesting. Yeah, it's a great point, Leo. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. That I actually have a follow up if you don't mind regarding, uh, you were talking about international data and studies, and it occurred to me that uh, there's probably other um, other for armed forces around the world that probably have had inclusive uh, policies before the US. So I'm wondering, and you may not know, but this is kind of just the, the question that popped in my mind. I wonder if you have any, uh, any idea from transnational data uh, that may show uh, whether the rates of what the, what the rates of suicidal behavior may look like in places that may have more inclusive policies towards uh, military personnel and gender diversity. Oh, Leo, I think you hit above my pay grade, sir. I, I'm <laughs> sure. <laughs> I, I, it's such a great question, and to be honest, um, I have felt um, often very unequipped, unknowledgeable around just U.S. policies and practices that, to be honest, I haven't taken the time to extend in the international space that much because I still feel pretty, uh, you know, I feel like I have some knowledge, but I still often feel like I have a lot of gaps. So to be honest, I just haven't extended uh, into the international space. Totally. No, yeah, no problem. It literally just came to me as we were talking. I was like, hey, I wonder what, you know, Norway might look like in this area. Uh, so, yeah, that sounds like something that a, an enterprising young grad student should start digging into. And I would love to work with them. <laughs> Thank you, Ray, for taking your time today to describe so much of your research and other research in the field. It's been really informative. I'm wondering what clinicians, scientists, and other people can do to support the mental health of gender diverse and transgender people in our own lives from this point. And I think we all have the ability, um, it, whether the discipline is a grad student or you know, a practicing psychologist in the clinical space or in a research space, we all have you know, skills and, and life experiences that can, can uh, bring to this, whether that's sort of our grassroots community um, advocacy and working to be, let's see, even say gender affirming in the research labs that we run or the clinical spaces that we work in, but also creating a 
um, I, I guess, steam engine of, of, of sort of affirming practices that we continue to learn from. So whether that's as simple as making sure we have a Google Scholar alert for the next uh, guidelines for affirming care from something like the American Psychological Association or, or uh, WPATH, uh, or maybe uh, taking a look at the National Center for Trans Equality data briefs every handful of years when they come out. I think it's it's having that mindset and uh, sort of knowledge of some of these great resources that we can keep coming back to. Because one thing I, I feel very confident in as a scholar and a clinician in this space is I'm never going to have all the information and that things to move too quickly. But my hope is with my trainees to impart sort of a value system around this, as well as the actual tools to stay up to date um, when somebody is acting in line with that value of trying to be affirming in whatever you know, area that is, if it's advocacy, our day-to-day -day worlds, our, our professional worlds. Thank you so much for, for coming on today to talk to us, Ray. For people who want to continue to follow you and your work, where, where can they find you? Absolutely. So uh, best way uh, probably is to email me. My email is r-t-u-c-k-e-r-1 at lsu.edu. If you're in the Twitterverse, my handle is at Raymond P. Tucker. Um, and hopefully my lab website that you could find uh, through Louisiana State University um, also will have sort of up-to-date uh, research um, that's, that's coming out from the, the lab. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Ray. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Yeah, that was great. Do we want to try leaving the cameras on or do you want me to, or should we turn them off, Leo? What do you think? I like it. I think on works better because you just kind of to be able to see nonverbals. I, I think we step less on each other's <laughs> on each other's lines whenever I actually can see you. So let's do okay. that. That sounds good. Yeah. Leo and I sometimes talk over each other. So um, in a in a friendly, <laughs> non-antagonistic way. Um but yeah, you're more right. Adorably clumsy, I guess is how I would <laughs> describe it. <laughs>